This is the Investing in Florida Tech Podcast, hosted by Florida Funders Managing Partner, Tom Wallace. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Wallace. I'm the Managing Partner of Florida Funders, and I'm really excited today uh, to have a really wonderful entrepreneur and uh, angel investor with us, Jake Said. I will uh, let him introduce himself in a little bit, in a minute. But real quickly, Florida Funders, we're a, a hybrid between a venture capital fund and a crowdfunding site. And we scour the state of Florida looking for trying to find, fund and build the, the best tech company, early stage tech companies we can. We've been doing this for the last three years. We've invested in 22 portfolio companies with another 10 follow-ons. We've invested $12 million of capital, and our fund is an $18 million fund, and the crowd usually adds about two-thirds of that, so we have about $50 million of investable capital. And one of the things we try to do is turn on new angel investors and educate people about why you want to angel invest and how to angel invest and lessons learned and best practices. And that's what our video podcast series is all about. So with that, again, I'm delighted to have Jake here. Jake, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. I'm a venture investor focused on uh, probably investments in and around the Bay Area of California, but also investing nationally. My focus tends to be a bit more B2B around a couple of different theme areas. One is digital transformation, the legacy industries, so real estate, financial services, insurance, things like that, moving online and being impacted by technology, but also some of the broad architecture themes that we're seeing, which is the move to hybrid multi-cloud in the, in the enterprise and applied artificial intelligence. So those are the areas I'm focused on. Before investing, I was president of a company called 10X. We built the largest online marketplace for real estate transactions, both residential and commercial, B2B-focused transactions. We ultimately sold the business to uh, TH Lee Partners and uh, a big private equity firm. And uh, before that, spent 11 years at Lightspeed Venture Partners, where I was a managing director. And before that, was uh, started my career at Cisco Systems, uh, where we built a, a billion run rate business basically from scratch. Great. So uh, how did you first get involved in angel investing? Well, I uh, first got involved in investing in 2000 when I joined Lightspeed. We invested at the seed stage, Series A stage, early stage focused fund. How big was the fund? Our first fund um, that I was a part of was an $800 million fund. And then we raised the subsequent $1.3 billion in two follow-on funds after okay. that. So I was involved for, for three funds before doing 10X. Learned a lot of that, I'll bet. Yeah, yeah. It was a great platform, great mentors. It was a great apprenticeship business. Started as a, a junior associate at 24 and over 11 years became one of six managing directors on the Global Investment Committee. Very impressive. So uh, when you're looking at investments and you mentioned cloud, you mentioned AI, you mentioned disruptive uh, digital transformation, what do you look for in investments? What are you looking for? What are the most important things uh, that the companies you decide to invest? You know, there, there's a lot of uh, things that just seem very generic, right? You always hear about good teams, good markets, differentiation. You know, really what it boils down to is the specifics. And it's hard to generalize uh, when it comes to the specifics of a particular company. You know, but for example, with a team, you know, really trying to understand what key insight do they have in the market that maybe others don't or what key trend are they trying to capitalize on that are, that isn't well capitalized on 
are they approaching it with a business model that's exciting? And for me, business models that are exciting are ones that naturally create high barriers to entry, that tend to be high gross margin businesses. For me, those are businesses that have a higher chance of success in up and down markets versus, you know, some companies are built with low gross margins. Some companies are built more as execution plays. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to execute for any company, but ones where you have a business model that promotes barriers to entry and high gross margins, I think, gives you a higher odds of having a successful return. So defensibility is important to you? That, that's exactly, exactly. That's and, interesting. And, 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 you know, there's different ways to create defensibility. You know, some people think you create defensibility with a bunch of patents. You know, to me, that there are much more structural ways to create defensibility. You know, for example, our business at 10X was a marketplace business. Defensibility in marketplaces gets created through liquidity. So buyers beget sellers, sellers beget buyers. And then all of a sudden, you're the place with the most selection, so you attract the most buyers. You're the place with the most buyers, so you attract the most sellers. Those types of businesses that have structural barriers to entry, to me, are, are the most interesting. One of the things our, our listeners always like to hear about are wins and losses or you know, misses and, and successes and share some stories with us. Uh, maybe your, your, your biggest miss or, or worst investment. Yeah. Yeah. My, my biggest miss was, uh, you know, probably from a career standpoint when, you know, uh, I, again, I was at Cisco early in my career and, and things were going well, but I had a bunch of friends who had worked for me, who were working for me that said, Hey, we're going to go to, to Google. And, you know, I just, uh, never thought of myself as an advertising person. And that was really a lesson learned and, and, you know, something that I'd share with executives and, and entrepreneurs and even people earlier in their career is in, in kind of the, the startup world and, and the entrepreneurial world, you know, oftentimes people them, think of themselves as being affiliated with a particular industry. And really the, the way you should think about yourself, not as a XYZ industry person, but as a big market person. And if you see an opportunity in a monster sized market, then you're going to have fun even if you never lived in, in that, that industry, even if you think that industry isn't super interesting, mm -hmm. if it's really, really big, if it's a trillion dollar market and you're going to change that trillion dollar market, you're going to have fun no matter what. Yeah. And so, and this is something that we saw at 10X, you know, we recruit a lot of people that never thought of themselves as real estate people. But the idea was, hey, it's not about being a real estate person. It's about the fact that when you change a, change a trillion dollar market, you're going to have fun. You know, I would argue the, the hybrid multi-cloud world, people's eyes might glaze over when, you know, you say those words. But it's, again, a trillion-dollar transformation that's happening in the enterprise. There's a lot of fun to be had. If Bezos came to you in 95, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm not, never thought of myself as working in retail. You'd say, oh, my God, that's a three-trillion-dollar market. You're going to disrupt that. It's going to be fun. You know, Uber, very similarly, you know, they started with hailing taxis. Who thought hailing taxis would yeah. be sexy, right? Again, massive market, the transportation industry, redefining it. So, again, don't think of industries as being interesting or not based on your perception of the industry. Use the yardstick of how big is it. When you start talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, you're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be an amazing ride. Yeah, that reminds me of the story. I was at the Angel Capital Association annual convention this year in Boston, and one of the investors, longtime investor, one of the early investments he passed on, one of the guys that worked for him went up to Seattle and he was stuffing boxes, books in boxes and shipping them out. And 
he said, Hey, we're going to do another round. And, you know, we, you know, there's 250,000 open. Do you want it? And he's like, ah, I don't get it. You're just selling boxes, you know, books over the internet. Well, you know, this is, it was Visa. <laughs> so it was Amazon. And he said to this day, they keep a chart in his office, his peers of what it would be worth. <laughs> he has to look at it every <laughs> just day. Just to torture yourself a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What are friends for? <laughs> but we've all had them and, and uh, misses are just part of it. What do you look for in a founder? And or f- do you prefer a founder or founders? Do you prefer more than one? And what do you look for? You know, I, I think both work, right? You could have a founder, you could have a founding team. I think with a founding team, certainly you're trying to to really see, you know, two things. One is, is each person bringing something different and additive to the table. Is it three people that look exactly the same and there really isn't a complementary skill set? And then, of course, you know, again, good chemistry between a founding team is very important. Sure. I really think in a lot of ways, people ask this question, you bet on the jockey or the horse, right? And in some ways, I always think that's not a fair question because, look, if, if, if Larry Page as a Stanford PhD student came to you and said, hey, I have this idea for Google – you say, yes, he's a very accomplished person. He's a Stanford PhD student. But hey, there are lots of smart PhD students from lots of different, you know, great colleges. Yeah. And so to me, there's a lot of things that are intertwined between great folks, great markets, or people who are talented and in very interesting markets. And so to me, you're, you're always looking at both. Of course, if it's somebody who's had a billion dollar exit, yeah. you might give them money regardless of what they're going to do because they've got that kind of track record. Mm-hmm. But I find, you know, most people who are, are very talented, still you're looking at the market, trying to understand their insight into the market, how they think about approaching the problem. And at the end of the day, you know, seeing if it makes sense as a venture investment where you could, you know, start a forest fire with a match, so to speak, you know, small capital in, you could hit huge milestones that significantly reduce risk into transforming what looks like a big market. If you have somebody who's very thoughtful about that, then, you know, again, that combination of founder and market is what Mm -hmm. creates an interesting investment. That brings a a thought because we've had this happen Fairly recently at, at Florida Funders, where we looked at an idea, great market, disruptive, really liked it. But we looked at the founder and said, you know, they may be able to get this a little bit along the way, but this company's going to, if this succeeds, this is going to quickly outgrow them. This, they're not going to be able to pull this off to scale this. Will you go into investment knowing going in that you're going to need to pretty much make a change at the top within maybe even a couple of years? You know, absolutely. And I think the reason why absolutely is because I think there's different models. One is to say, look, there's somebody, you know, you look at them today, 2019, and you say, if I take that person and and stick them in a, a bigger business, you know, that same person in a bigger business, they might not be able to run it. But, but I think that misses a key thing that happens with a lot of talented people, which is they grow. And so I, I've seen many people that, you know, the, the, the 2019 version of themselves versus the 22 version of themselves is totally different. And so to me, if somebody has a great idea, you know, great market, and you believe they could take it for the next couple of years, then I think that's a bet to make because one, I think there's a real shot on goal that they can grow. And two, as an investor, part of our job is to help surround the founder and the entrepreneur, the founding CEO with talent who could scale that CEO and fill in in their areas where they're not as experienced. 
And I think you've seen that model over and over. And if you look at the biggest successes, who started Google? It was the found CEO of Google. And, and yes, they, they had a partner around the table in Eric Schmidt that helped yeah, they them. they brought Eric in pretty early. To, to scale it, but it was a business that had a lot of traction, a lot of usage, and those founders learned from Eric, and that helped them build the business. You know, you look at Michael Dell, you look at Bill Gates, you know, uh, more recent startups, uh, Dirich Pandey at uh, Nutanix, founder, CEO, scaled the business, and, you know, it's, it's now an eight, $8 billion market cap company. Jerry Canelli at Riverbed scaled the business. He was a first-time CEO. He was a CFO before. And so to me, there, there are so many examples where talented folks, you know, again, you, if you look at Michael Dell as a 19 year old, you wouldn't yeah. think of him as the person who runs a, a massive business, but these talented entrepreneurs grow. Yeah. And as an investor, we have an opportunity to support them and help them grow. You know, Zuckerberg also very similarly. Yeah. And, and you see what happens when you bring a, a, an entrepreneur where, where this is everything to them. You surround them with, with great folks that they can learn from and, and fill in their skill gaps. And to me, that's where you have really, you know, tremendous opportunities. You brought up adding value, helping them with their recruiting the team and surrounding themselves with the right people. How much and often do you typically get involved in the companies you invest in? And how do you look at that? Do you want to get involved? Do you prefer not or? Yeah, my, I, I view 110%. If you're an investor, you, you must be adding value. You know, you could add value around strategic advice to the founder and CEO, help with recruiting, help with customers, help with partners. I would argue if it's a great company and you're not adding value, they shouldn't take your money yeah. because, you know, for great companies, money is the commodity and what founders need. And again, I, I was in this position also when I was running 10X, which was, you know, we really wanted partners and investors who were going to add value. Sure. And that's, I think, the great synergy between quality investors and quality companies is investors are really working hard for their companies and helping them to get to the next level. Yeah, Florida Funders, we've borrowed from the private equity model. So we have signed an operating partner to every one of our investments. And that person usually represents us on the board of directors if we have a board seat. And of course, you know, Steve McDonald. So yeah. Steve McDonald's yeah. the operating partner on Finexio, a company you heard from earlier, one yeah. of our, our portfolio companies. So we're, we're big believers in that. During the, the, when you're looking at investing, before you've made the investment, are there any red flags that, you know, things that you're looking for that as soon as you see that, this is over. We're, we're moving on. Yeah. I, you know, there, there, there <laughs> there's a variety of red flags. Um, you know, start with the team, right? Is it the right team? Is it the right chemistry between the founders? Do they bring something to the table that gives you conviction that these folks are the best in the world to prosecute that opportunity? Market, you look at market size, you know, the competitive dynamics of the market, the business model opportunity in that market. And again, if it's if it's a small market, a slow growing market, a market with long sales cycles, Unless you have a convincing argument as to why this company can address that core issue, then those become red flags. So team and market, I think, are the key red flags. There's a lot of people who say, well, you know, we look at how many patents they have and, you know, is, is the technology hard? Is it, are there any red flags around technology? I would say as an investor, you take different types of risk. And as an investor, I'm much more willing to take technology risk than I am people in market risk. And so um, while some people would put red flags around technology, 
I'm more willing to take risk on the technology side than with people and, and, and markets. For some companies, one of the things, you know, just drilling down a little bit more into thinking about the market, I think companies that have grown off of a small base at what seems like a high percentage, but is not a compelling percentage growth is at least the yellow flag. And let me explain. So you'll have entrepreneurs who'll do a million dollars of revenue and then say, I'm projecting $2 million of revenue and say, I'm growing a hundred percent. You know, how many companies do you know grow a hundred percent year over year? And, and really that's that small. That, that's a red flag. One, the red flag is, hey, this is an entrepreneur who probably doesn't think big enough because they're satisfied with going from 1 million to 2 million. And, and two, you know, compounding numbers off of a small base is yeah. it actually, you know, for there's a lot of ways to grow companies. There's a lot of ways to fund companies. And it could be a very fine company to be a lifestyle company or to be funded through other mechanisms, but it's not a venture backable company mm-hmm. in my view. And so, again, from the, 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 the narrow lens that I'm taking of Silicon Valley venture capital going from one to two and one to two to, to four, I would say that, that would be another example of a red flag where even though it's quote unquote 100% growth business, it's off of a small base and it's really not the type of growth you'd need to see to put in high risk venture dollars. And as an early investor, it is unlikely you would get a markup follow-on round, which is something that you depend on, right? As being an early investor, you depend on follow-on money coming in at a higher valuation. It is unlikely you'll be able to track that capital. So that's another potential red flag that's out there. And how early do you like to invest? Do you you look at pre-revenue or are you looking for some revenue or? Pre-revenue early, post-revenue early. 80% 80% of what I've been doing is early and about 20% expansion. Mm-hmm. So uh, I believe on the expansion side, you know, on a risk adjusted basis, there are really interesting opportunities out there. And on the early stage side, there's, you know, compelling teams and ideas that you're going to invest pre-revenue. The, the great thing for entrepreneurs in this day and age is the ability to generate revenue with minimal dollars invested is, you know, more doable now than ever in the past, right? You don't have to spend. With the cloud and. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you spin up some some AWS servers. If nobody uses your service, you don't pay. Lots of people use it. Then you have a great pitch to, to raise money and fund growth. Digital channels of acquisition, viral channels of acquisition. I think, you know, for entrepreneurs, they should really keep in mind that the bar for some of the larger funds and, and even the larger early stage funds has really gone up in them expecting, you know, some level of revenue from companies, even for the first check in. But, but personally, I've done both. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I always like to ask when we're talking to uh, uh, founders and they're pitching us is, you know, what's your exit strategy? Do you ask that? And in, in, when you do, what do you like to hear? Uh, I actually never ask that question. Because I, I, I'm only looking for companies that I think can be standalone public companies. Obviously, most companies never become standalone public companies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, if you're setting your bar at, hey, this is a big enough market where you could have a company that, that, that goes public and it's got the right business model, then if something, you know, uh, snags, you have a chance of selling it or you get a, a high price strategic acquisition before it actually goes public, like we've seen with so many companies. Mm-hmm. But my issue is if you look for companies that 
potentially don't have that market size, you actually create more risk because every company can go to zero, but very few companies can really knock it out of the park. Mm -hmm. And so you bet on having these extreme winners to make up for the, the fact that you're taking very high risk. You know, some folks might say, look, I could put money in at four pre and I could definitely get a six X on this. You know, to me, that that actually increases the risk in your portfolio mm -hmm. because you need if you're investing at four pre, you need like the 50 X, you need the 100 X mm -hmm. to make up for investments and, and plus create a multiple on your overall portfolio. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I never asked that question. It, to me, it's I'm looking to see it. Can it be a standalone public company? And if not, then, you know, there's a market size or business model question. Yeah, I think there things are a little different in Florida. And I like to ask the question. What I hate to hear is we're going to build this thing in three or four years and flip it. Yeah. I, if they say I haven't really thought about an exit strategy, I just want to own this market and build a great company. To me, that's a wonderful answer. It's a, it's a red flag for us, and we get it a lot. Where people, yeah, we're gonna, I'm gonna, and then my next company, <laughs> they, they do that. And, and you know, in, in my experience, ultimately people will do what they're gonna do, right? And look, at if somebody wants to buy a company for a hundred million, the founder owns twenty percent. They're gonna get twenty million dollar payday. You know, it's their first success, and that is life changing. To me, hey, if the founder wants to do it, then the founder should do what they want to do. And, and investors should never stand in the way of people getting their nest egg, people getting, you know, a life savings. And so it, to me, it's always hard to, to, to deduce where people's heads will be when if a, sh a check ever shows up for yeah. real. So I, I, I tend to not to answer the question from that, you know, ask the question from that perspective. Yeah. But, you know, it's certainly relevant to figure out, are they in it for the long haul? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about deal flow. Uh, how many deals do you look at to the ones you invest and where do you get your best deal flow? Where have you found your best deals? So uh, deal flow really comes through, you know, the, the, the personal network I've built. So moved out to the Valley in 98. And so th there's a lot of networks that I'm a part of, um, you know, part of the, the MIT alumni network and the Bay Area has the, um, I believe, the largest alumni group in the world. Wow. Uh, 14,000 alums are based there and, and obviously predominantly heavy engineering heavy focus for that alumni group. I'm, I'm on the board of the alumni club in the Bay Area. There's a lot of great folks coming out of Cisco from, from, from those periods of time at Lightspeed spending 11 years. Obviously, I met a lot of entrepreneurs along the way, uh, built a lot of relationships with other venture capitalists along the way. And so it, it's really all of those different sources. And then, you know, I, I think you know, I'm someone who tries to work very hard for my portfolio companies. I really focus on adding value to my portfolio companies. My portfolio company CEOs say, hey, you know, when they have a friend that is doing something interesting, they connect me because they know, you know, I, I put in that time and effort and yeah. try to add that value. Well, that's a great testament. I mean, when they're when, when your portfolio companies are referring you business, that's a yeah. you're obviously adding value to them. Well, I don't have a lot a lot more questions. I'd, I'd maybe open it up a little bit and just, is there anything you'd like to share with other investors, lessons learned or best practices that, you know, maybe you learned the hard way or whatever, anything else you'd like to share with the audience? You know, I, I think the, um, one of the things that we've been in for the last decade is, is basically an uptrend 
at some point there's going to be a cycle. And I think what I'd share is, you know, those are the times when, when a downturn happens, that's when the tourists go home, right? And, <laughs> I like that. But that's also when real money can be made. Uh, now the reality is, hey, there are great companies being built, but valuations are high. You know, for companies, it's hard to attract great talent because everybody's well-funded and, you know, there there's uh, only so many great people that are out there. But I would say for those who are passionate about building companies, investing in companies, that really when downturn happens, look at that as an opportunity, um, not as, um, as an issue or a problem. It's not fun. It's painful, but it, there is a big opportunity there. And, and then also for an area like Florida, you know, there, those types of downturns hurt. Don't let it stop the momentum that you guys have built and that you guys are creating. That's a great uh, point. Because, again, that's where great companies are built in these downturns. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes people forget about that. That's a great point. And, and valuations are lower. So from an investor standpoint, a downturn, it could be a great time to, what's Warren Buffett say, be fearful when those are greedy, be greedy when others that's are fearful. fearful. And, that's right. you know, investing is an emotional game. So sometimes that's harder to do than... Easier said than done. Yeah, right? exactly. That's why there are very few Warren Buffetts. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jake, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, really, really good. I know our audience is going to love it and uh, really appreciate it and continued success. And uh, to our audience, thanks so much for tuning in. And we'll be doing more of these. And if you have any interest in in angel investing or learning more about angel investing in Florida, go to floridafunders.com. You can sign up. We have all kinds of events going on all the time, as well as uh, we have deals up for funding. We'd love to have you join our group. Thank you so much. Florida Funders is an early stage venture capital firm that blends a venture fund and a crowdfunding platform. They are investing in some of the most exciting early-stage technology companies in the state of Florida. 